1: Coming to you live from New York, I'm Zane Asher. You are watching First Move, and here is what you need to know. Dominating Davos, sustainability takes center stage at the World Economic Forum ahead of President Donald Trump's arrival and fighting extradition. Huawei's CFO is back in court this week to find out if she'll be sent to the United States. And the deadline is getting close. President Donald Trump's legal team is expected to respond to the impeachment article. It is Monday, my friends, and this is First Move. We'll <laughs> be Welcome to First Move. I'm Zane Ash. So good to have you with us on this Monday morning. We'll be following all the action from the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland throughout the week. Julia Chatley is going to be joining us live in just a couple of minutes from Davos. Uh, but first, let's give you a quick look at the markets. US stocks are closed for Martin Luther King Day, that uh, holiday. European stocks, however, are up and running. They are trading mostly low right now after touching record highs on Friday. Asia finished Monday session mixed. It means time, crude is trading at its highest levels in a week. Unrest has forced a shutdown of oil production in Libya. Security concerns in Iraq are also helping drive prices higher as well. Let's get right to the drivers though and our very first day of coverage this year from Davos. Uh, 3,000 of the world's most powerful, wealthy and influential people are gathering in the Swiss town of Davos for the 50th World Economic Forum. So far, so familiar. But this week there is something new on the agenda and that is where we find our very own Julia Chatley, where the climate crisis, Julia, is really taking center stage there.
2: Absolutely shooting to the top of the agenda this year around us. Zane, thank you so much for that. Welcome, everybody, to a beautiful, sunny Davos here, where the World Economic Forum is meeting for the 50th yes it's the 50th anniversary sustainability the climate crisis among some of the key topics the beautiful backdrop belying the tough talk i think that's going to take place over the coming few days now if we're talking climate crisis of course Who better to slug it out, or should I say scowl it out, perhaps, than some of our key headliners? I'm talking US President Donald Trump, of course, and the 17-year-old activist Greta Thunberg. They will be here tomorrow. That's going to be the thing to watch. But of course, today the preparations take place and we are just getting warmed up. Of course, the big issues, monetary policy, economic growth, what's going on in emerging markets, inequality to Oxfam coming out today with the mind-blowing statistic that the world's richest 22 men have more wealth than all of Africa's women. We're talking 326 million women. I'll just let that sink in for a second, but that's one of the key things that gets discussed. The question is, do we get the follow-through? Now, I've talked about some of the headliners here. For now, though, the two headliners are myself and Richard Quest, who is about to join me any moment. Richard Quest, come in here, please. I shall be with you. I am <laughs> moving amongst you. Oh, he doesn't even have a microphone on yet. Well, Do you no, want me no, to hold that? No, part?
3: not in the slightest. <laughs> I thought you were I, I thought I was being a bit
2: previous. Oh sorry. Oh, right. oh, I didn't give him enough of a warning Now No, look at this mother. You know,
3: the, the truth- I'm glad you mentioned about this mountainside because the the reality is this mountainside. Isn't, hasn't got nearly as much snow on as it should have had. When we came up on the train, green fields until you really got just halfway up, and then you got snow. But this should be up to here, and
2: now it's just sort of down there. Speaking of sustainability efforts, you did come on the train. You did come on the train. I didn't come on the train very much. I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> I was not I knew, I going knew what you to were say that. that. No. I knew what you no. were doing there. No no, 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 no. Anyway, it's an emergency. And you it's on the train? Potentially. I'm getting told off now.
3: Let's talk about Klaus Schwab, please. Ah, yes, Klaus Schwab. It's an emergency. Look, Klaus Schwab uh, has been holding this conference for 50 years, but this is the first time I've ever heard him speak in such forthright terms about the state of the world. That's uh, what we have seen, but um, I think uh, during this meeting we may have some influence because we discuss, we bring it on the table, the whole issue of environment. It is an annual sport at this time of the year to question whether WEF and whether Davos is worth it. People, the articles are everywhere, you know. Is it worth the elites going up to the top of the mountain? And uh, But not just this year look back on 50 years and look forward is it worth it it's not only worth it it's necessary look what we have in the world to avoid the disintegration of our world we need a platform which brings people together from all walks of life and that's what The UN is a very great partner of ours and we work together with everybody but you need everybody into the boat, you need a dialogue and you need uh, solutions which are jointly developed. Um, Now to be fair the, the issue of the environment is one that's been raised here many, many times. Gerhard right. Grohl- and Brundtland raised it in the late 70s. But this is the first time I think it's actually taken precedence. And that might be because the economic issues are not as great as they have been in the past. It's all very nuanced about growth versus jobs versus this versus that, uh, interest rates. It's not really a burning issue.
2: Extreme weather. The last yeah. 12 yeah. months, yeah. this yeah. has been something that we've watched all the way around the world.
3: But the questions to be asked here, for instance, Australia Australia opposed many of the proposals in the recent COP talks. And yet Australia is the country that's being hit hardest at the moment. I think that the I think the most important development, most important, was BlackRock. By far and away, which I think you're going to be I am. Where you are. I know you are. Um, and, and I think the Blackrock development to divest of, of fossil fuel investments and concentrate on sustainable investments, I think that has taken everybody by absolute storm and set the agenda.
2: I agree. That was the headliner coming yeah. in here. Yeah. I mean, these guys saying, look, we manage seven trillion dollars worth of assets. Going forward, we're gonna make sure that one percent is ESG funds ultimately. I spoke to the vice chair, Philip Hildebrand, earlier today just to get his sense of what
4: they're doing here, listening. I think we've been building up to this for a long time. We knew this was a big deal for us, for the industry. And I can tell you, the morning of the town hall internally, the excitement I saw on the faces of our employees, particularly the younger ones, was perhaps the most thrilling piece of of this announcement for us. So you can tell that it resonates. People want us to do this. Our clients have been asking for it. So we are responding to the clients stakeholder
2: capitalism oh. that's what's key i think about this decision but what's also interesting and we'll say this later on in the show with the conversation that we'll that we'll continue to play vanguard other big asset managers saying it's not our job to tell corporates what to do we're not going to sign climate action 100 plus huge distinction here but
3: you've got those like microsoft Love them or hate them, this idea of being carbon negative by 2030. 2030. You've got IAG, you've got all the airlines coming on board. And um, this concept of stakeholder capitalism, we've heard it before. Of course, Schwab talked about this in the interview, which you'll hear tonight on Christmas Business. Uh, this idea that we're all in it together. Um, but it's going, the issue is, is it going fast enough? Coretta will say No. no. Others will say, you get what you're given.
2: Somewhere in the middle. We need to accelerate, right. but perhaps not full cutting out yep. fossil fuels. There's always a balance. Richard Quest, right. great to have you thank with you. us. Thank you. Dave. I'll hand back to you. All right, Julia, thank you so much. Huawei's
1: chief financial officer is heading to a Canadian courtroom. The daughter of Huawei's CEO, she is facing extradition to the United States. It is a critical moment for the company, which has become emblematic of U.S.-China tensions. Claire Sebastian is joining us live now. So, Claire, just walk us through what is at stake here and also what will be Meng's uh, line of defence that her lawyers will put forward?
5: has yeah, a much more at stake here than the fate of this one woman. But this, as you say, uh, is a critical moment for her. She has been uh, under sort of house arrest, wearing an ankle bracelet for more than a year now since she was arrested in Vancouver, Canada, in December 2018 at the behest of the United States. She is accused by the United States of, of misleading four international banks, including HSBC, about Huawei's business dealings in Iran in order to uh, obtain financial services in violation uh, of U.S. sanctions. She denies that China has called this case Politically motivated, uh, so so she is now going to head to court in her own defence. This will be the first time she gets to testify in an extradition process that could take many, many months. We are unlikely to get a resolution this week, but still a, a very big moment. And she will be arguing uh, that, that the standard that you have to meet uh, in Canada in order to obtain extradition to the US is double criminality, i.e., uh, the conduct that she's accused of uh, of under US law is also a criminal conduct. In Canada, she will try to argue that because those sanctions are enshrined in U.S. law, not in Canadian law, that it doesn't meet that standard. She will also argue that this case is politically motivated. Don't forget, in the days after she was arrested in December 2018, President Trump went in on an interview and and refused to rule out that he could intervene in this case if it became helpful in the U.S.-China trade war. She has also, Zane, accused Canadian border authorities of violating her rights when she was arrested In December uh, 2018. So this uh, will all play out against the backdrop uh, of an ongoing sort of trade dispute. They have reached a phase one deal, but they still have to negotiate phase two. And this is certainly going to continue to be something that will be watched in that in that arena.
1: Right, Claire Sebastian, live for us there. Thank you so much. All right, now to the impeachment trial in Washington. President Trump is set to submit his first detailed defense today. His lawyers have until noon to file a brief outlining their arguments. Joe Johns is live for us uh, at the White House. So, So, Joe, here's the thing. One of the most contentious issues at stake here is really the issue of whether or not to call witnesses. How unprecedented is it not to have witnesses at an impeachment trial?
6: It'd be very unusual not to have witnesses. In fact, there were some witnesses back during the impeachment of Bill Clinton. And remember, impeachments in the United States are not just for the president, the vice president of the United States, also for judges, for example, and other high officers of the U.S. government. And many of those cases have had witnesses. So it'd be very unusual for them not to go there. And the question, of course, is whether the Democrats are going to be able to get the four votes from Republicans in order to call the witnesses they say they think are important in this trial. to also prolong the trial, which is something a lot of people don't love, especially since the president's State of the Union address is coming up in very early February and they don't want this impeachment trial to bump up on his day uh, up there in the House chamber, Zane.
1: All right, Joe John's live for us there in Washington. Thank you so much. OK, so these are the stories making headlines around the world. The clashes between security forces and demonstrators in Iraq have left at least one person dead and dozens wounded. Protesters are out in force demanding a new interim prime minister. And they say Monday is the deadline for choosing one. Prime Minister Adil Abdul Mahdi resigned last year but remains in office as a caretaker. China has confirmed 139 new cases of the SARS-like coronavirus over the weekend, including another death. This brings the total number of fatalities to three. The outbreak has spread domestically to Beijing and Shenzhen from the city of Wuhan, where it was first identified. And Prince Harry has spoken in the wake of the Buckingham Palace announcement that he and his wife, Meghan, Duchess of Sussex, will no longer be working members of the royal family. He expressed great sadness over the decision at a charity event on Sunday, but said there really was no other option But to step back, we'll be live for you from Buckingham Palace, not in Buckingham Palace, later on in the show. All right, still to come here, more from the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, where the biggest names in business are hoping for faster global growth. The outline for stocks and the global economy next. Plus, auto sales in reverse. The CEO and founder of Dubai-based W Motors surveys the road ahead for luxury vehicles as car sales slump. That story next. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move, live today from New York and the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. It's a market holiday here in the United States as the nation celebrates Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Wall Street is back in action, though, tomorrow with all the major averages at fresh all-time highs. It's going to be another key earnings week with Netflix, IBM, Intel and many other companies set to report uh, as well. European stocks are trading mostly lower after touching record highs on Friday, although we are seeing slight gains in Germany. Chris Watling joins us live now. He is the CEO and Chief Market Strategist at Longview Economics. Chris, thank you so much for being with us. So I just want to take a broad view because obviously the markets are closed today here in the United States. But just given that we are experiencing the longest bull run in the U.S. in history, we've had 10 straight years of a continued economic expansion in this country. What is your major concern going into 2020 for the next six months?
7: Well, I I do. I mean, certainly have concerns, although I I, I mean, up front, I would say we're very positive on equities for the year for 2020. And I think they can surprise to the upside. But there are, of course, risks associated with that. And I think one of those is probably that uh, the Fed stops its repo program too early. I think, you know, one of the key uh, or for the wrong reasons or it stops it in a a bad way, if you like. I mean, one of the key drives of this market has undoubtedly been liquidity and uh, interest rate cuts. And the repo program is a part of that. It's getting liquidity into the system, helping inflate Asset prices and um, and it's been a key part behind this this latest bull run over recent weeks. So I think if the Fed um, stops that for the right reasons, it gets it right, it gets its timing right, and it's sort of lovely handover to sort of uh, reacceleration of of economic uh, growth globally, which we're starting to see. If the Fed gets that right, then I don't think we need to worry about the end of the repo programme. But I'm worried it, it ends it prematurely or, or it doesn't end it well. I think that's probably perhaps the biggest risk uh, or certainly one of the biggest risks out there for 2020.
1: And speaking of global growth, the IMF, just ahead of Davos, came up with a report saying that they believe that economic growth is actually slowing down globally. They trimmed their forecast ever so slightly. How do you see that factor playing into equities?
7: Well, I mean, I'm no disrespect to the IMF, but they have a habit of coming uh, at the end of the slowdown and revising down their forecasts. They're slightly backward looking. I mean, I think the reality is the global economy is starting to reaccelerate. Just look at some of that US housing data we've had out in the last couple of months. Housing starts and permits having gone sideways for two years are really starting to break to the upside. And we had another data point on starts on that last week. And and generally, sort of rule of thumb, where housing in the States goes, so goes the economic cycle. And and actually, I feel quite optimistic about EU, Euro- European growth re-accelerating and so on. So, so you know, I I, I think we're in a mini cycle. Uh, it was a mini cycle slowdown in 2019, starting at the end of 2018, and I think we're now going to be the theme for this year is a mini cycle global reacceleration, really led by the states and um, backed up by Europe. So, China's kind of the weak, the weak, uh, the weak one of the of the three major economic regions of the world. But I think mini cycle economic reacceleration is the theme for 2020.
1: Um, And speaking of which, a lot of people sort of looked at 2019 and saw sort of earnings performance in 2019 as somewhat lacklustre. How hopeful are you that that would completely turn around going into 2020?
7: Well, it should turn around. And what you find is earnings forecasts and earnings estimates tend to follow what the global economy does and what bond yields do. Bond yields is a good leading indicator of where earnings estimates move to. And the other thing I would say is, uh, you know, bizarrely, this may sound strange, but there's absolutely zero correlation between earnings expectations for the year and the actual performance of, of the S&P 500 or, or global stock markets in that year. In other words, earnings matter, but they don't matter on a 12-month view. The market's much more about liquidity and it anticipates earnings acceleration. So I'd be very surprised if, if earnings weren't sort of OK this year. Um, but um, I think the market can do better than, than just what earnings might give us. I think you can get a bit more upward re-rating because there's so much liquidity around. And, and momentum, I think, will, will, will support the market throughout the year.
1: And I want to touch on commodities quickly because, obviously, gold rose uh, at the beginning of the year when uh, Mideast tensions between U.S. and Iran uh, were slightly higher or significantly higher, I should say, That ended up calming down. I mean, where do you see gold going this year? Do you see gold being worth shorting, perhaps, if things end up staying much calmer?
7: Yeah, I mean, I'd go short gold here. I think gold's had a good run. Uh, I think on the next three to six months, gold will underperform. It's priced in a lot of uh, loosening of monetary policy. Uh, And as the global economy starts to reaccelerate, I think some of that... Remaining bit that's priced in will be priced out, and even by the end of the year, we might be talking about the Fed thinking about raising rates in 2021. So, you know, gold doesn't like higher interest rates. Gold likes it when we're pricing in more and more rate cuts, or when um, you know, tips yields are falling, or when or when the dollar's weak. That tends to be what drives gold higher. And I, I just don't think you're going to get that combination this year. I think we've had the best of it. It's behind us. So, um, actually, I, I'd be short gold as I think bond yields would be rising for most of 2020.
1: Right, Chris Watling, live for us. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right, Thank here's you. today's boardroom brief. Shares in high-end tonic maker Fevertree fell 20% in London trading. The company issued its second revenue warning in three months after disappointing Christmas sales in the UK. And Samsung has appointed a new executive to head up its mobile unit. Rote Moon is 51 years old and the company's youngest ever president. He's coming on board amid increased competition from smartphones made by China's Huawei and other firms as well. The global auto industry plunged even deeper into recession in 2019, sales dropping more than 4% as demand in China and India plummeted. The slump is likely continuing this year with big ramifications for the global economy. So how does the auto industry adapt to survive? Ralph DeBas is CEO and founder of W Motors. He joins us live now. Ralph, thank you so much for being with us. So the big theme at Davos this year is the climate crisis. Uh, Just talk to us about how the rising popularity of electric cars um, and the role the environment is playing in the auto sector and how that is changing the landscape.
8: Sure. I mean, today we're living in an automotive revolution. That's what we're calling. Everybody's fighting to become the leader in electric mobility and future mobility, as we call it today. Um, however, things are not as easy as we think. It's not about only making a car. It's about building the whole infrastructure that comes with it, the charging stations, and everything that's related to building a complete ecosystem for autonomous and electric uh, electric vehicles. And I believe. China was a leader at some point, the US are also leaders and the Middle East is growing today to try to become leaders in their own way for electric cars and the future of mobility.
1: One of the biggest uh, challenges right now is the slowdown we're seeing in the global auto sector because of slowdown in China and also trouble in India as well. How is that also affecting the landscape?
8: It is affecting, I mean, drastically. A few years ago, we used to see a big boom when it comes to electric cars, and we saw a lot of a lot of uh, countries aligning together, a lot of companies aligning together as well to develop technologies in, a be- in the best way and a cheaper way as well. But today, with what's happening politically around the world, it's not as easy as we think. Geographically, it's not as easy to adapt, you know, different factories in different locations, to have companies align together to try to develop new technologies. So there are challenges when it comes to that. And that's why you have small players coming out. We are one of them to try to develop technologies in a different way and try to adapt a neutral platform that can be positioned in every single country, in every single government that can utilize it in the best possible way. But it's not as easy as we think.
1: So one of the sort of key technologies in terms of the future of the car sector is, of course, self-driving cars. The Technology already exists. It's here with us now. But how long do you think it will take for the car industry around the world to fully adapt to uh, autonomous vehicles?
8: Well, we'll be surprised. I mean, technology is way more advanced than we think when it comes to autonomous driving. Uh, The technology is there and it's been there for many years. However, The regulation is still being in the works. The infrastructure is still being in the works. 5G is a big factor today, which is, thanks to 5G, it's gonna accelerate the development much faster. But I believe we have another two to three years of testing before we start seeing autonomous cars driving on the road. In the next seven years, we're gonna start seeing zones and sectors being adapted for autonomous driving. And hopefully by 2030, we're going to see a big chunk of autonomous cars driving on the roads for the public and for different services. And I do believe in it. I think the future is autonomous driving and we're getting there much faster than we think.
1: Okay, I just want to talk about W Motors. More specifically, you're opening a new manufacturing plant uh, in Dubai. Just talk to us about your company's strategy here and what sort of capacity we're looking at with this plant.
8: Well, we are the first brand of cars coming from the Middle East as p- positioned as a luxury brand, supercars and hypercars that we started in 2007 and we launched a car in 2012. But we adapted with the change that the, the region is having and the whole world is having when it comes to smart mobility and future technologies. So the company shifted towards being a traditional automotive manufacturer to a more electric uh, vehicle uh, division and autonomous driving and government cars as well. So the, the factory we opened, we just recently did the, the groundbreaking uh, a few weeks ago, and it is actually the first full-fledged automotive facility in the whole region. And we're proud to say that it's going to be based in Dubai to develop technologies, not only for normal vehicles, but also for government cars, uh, technologies when it comes to autonomous driving, electric cars, etc. Now, we have a capacity of around 200 vehicles a year only, but we're using it more of an R&D center for behind the scenes to start developing technologies for the governments and start releasing it to the world that's for the phase one and phase two is going to have a full-fledged academy where we're going to be stuck training people for the first time in the automotive sector the whole goal was to build the automotive industry to build the ecosystem the supply chain and i believe somebody had to start it somehow and uh, we're proud to be the first to do it and we believe that within the next few years many will follow us and many will start using this region to start developing their technologies and exporting the talents and the products to the world
1: after bus live for us thank you so much all right when we come back we'll take you to a picturesque swiss village where thousands of the world's richest and elite and most powerful are gathering right now that's next
2: Welcome back to First Move, live from a beautifully sunny Davos here in Switzerland, where the World Economic Forum is celebrating its 50th anniversary. Some things have changed. Many things haven't changed all that much at all. Take a look at 50 years of the World Economic Forum in Davos in 50 seconds. graceful aging there, John, And <laughs> package. The Davos legend that he is, John De joins us here. And you're celebrating a huge anniversary here, too. 30 years.
9: 1990. It was two months after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and hence why it was significant. It was a punt. And there was only 250 participants back then, so it's changed radically because we're looking at 3,000 participants overall.
2: I mean, you and I were talking about this earlier, mm. and that you were not even sure what you were going to at that point, but it really did feel like a meeting point, a debate point for the world's biggest influences a critical moment You critical know, I was moments. thinking
9: about it because we had a chat before, right place, right time. But I think the right people, because there's two months after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the discussion in Europe at the time is can you keep Humpty Dumpty you know, pull it back together right. again, or the European Union would disintegrate. Uh, they had uh, Helmut Kohl of Germany, his counterpart from East Germany, Madro, uh, Margaret Thatcher, Francois Mitterrand, Jacques Delors from the European Union, George Schultz, James Baker from the United States. But it was different then. You know, now we have this disruption, social media on top of the shouting in the populist street. You did feel at the time that it would all stay very much glued together. But and there 's some debate about this here in Davos. no doubt about it that 's what put the World Economic Forum uh, on, on the, the map. map no no, without it, without question, because it was three years after they had changed their name from the European uh, uh, Symposium to the World Economic Forum, and voila, like, what happened here? I feel
2: like there they were leading. Now it's about catch-up, to your point. Social media, technological disruption, mm. geopolitical tensions around the world. And at the heart of what we're debating here, sustainability, a, a climate change emergency here. And I think the whole world watching and saying, come on, guys, you need to do more, whether you're political leaders or whether you're business leaders here. And this oh. is the place to have that debate. Oh,
9: well, it's a great point that you're bringing up, because early on, the World Economic Forum embraced globalization, the opening up of China, India, by the way, it happened very much here because that's their first entree into the world stage was to the World Economic Forum. China. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Le Peng came in the 1990s. I had a chance to cover it. It was extraordinary. They embraced that, but nobody, and this is the fault not just of the forum, but I think of the West, not looking at the implications of it, the backlash to it. Uh, The carbon footprint. China and India consume two thirds of the world's coal today. And you have to be careful because of the wealth gap today and the report from Oxfam some 2,000 individuals controlling more wealth than 60% of the world's population. They can't be seen to be numb or slow reacting to the environment. If you don't think this is in 2020 the most important issue, you are. You know, tone deaf to what's going on in the world today. With Brett Thunberg, I think, will change that narrative. And perhaps, Julia, she's the one that challenges Donald Trump, right? Because the Europeans haven't stood up to Donald Trump on the environment. I think she will. It's going to be a very interesting debate. Two hours after she spe- he speaks, she takes the stage. You
2: raise such a great point, I mm. think, with that. The, the U.S. president is celebrated, but many of his views here, particularly things like climate change, we're talking about an emergency here, and yet President Trump sort of Shows it off and says this is not a big issue. He's well, a climate denier. He's a denier. Yeah. Challenge, I think, is the important word that you mentioned here, and perhaps a 17-year-old is the only one that's uh, up to doing it here, or at least scowling at him, like I said earlier on in the <laughs> well, show.
9: Uh, the European Union now is, is acting, you know, it's putting a trillion dollars forward for this transition, the energy transition taking place. The UK has put net zero 2050 as a policy right now. But, will they have a strong backbone. They were very flexible the last time Donald Trump was here. Well, they challenge you and say, hey, okay, come on, you can't really show up in the global community. Oil and gas companies recognize the transition. They're investing in renewables. You can't come here and say this is not a crisis after what we witnessed in Australia and disasters that we've seen around the world.
2: US companies are doing it despite what the government's saying here. John, you raised some great points. One company that came into the World Economic Forum, BlackRock, of course, Mm. with their huge announcement about sustainability and the shift that they're going to make in their $7 trillion Mm. portfolio. You had a little uh, taste of the interview earlier. Here's the full thing and the discussion that we had. We talked about why, actually, it makes sense for investors. It makes sense for the economy and the environment, clearly, but also why, for them, It was exciting for their employees too, the heart of Mm. stakeholder capitalism here, listen in.
4: Fundamentally, this is the big shift that's happened in the last couple of years. We now know from from data, from empirical studies in academia, in the industry, that actually it improves your risk-adjusted performance. So it's no longer about you have to do this because of social reasons. That may well be a reason you engage, but ultimately you do it in order to optimize risk-adjusted performance and to eliminate risks. Don't forget climate already is in the prices today. It is a risk that has manifested itself, whether it's in flooding and fires and future regulatory change, tax changes. All these things are going to affect financial assets, prices. And, and that's why I believe we're going to see a, a much bigger shift in capital than we currently uh, anticipate.
2: Have you thrown the gauntlet down for other big money managers? Vanguard is the obvious one they're saying at this stage look we've got no plans to join climate action 100 plus in the way that you guys did it's not our job to tell corporates how to behave is that is that enough at this moment you have huge leverage big funds like you guys
4: well we hope we're responding to this because we believe that it's in the interest of our clients. As a fiduciary, we're doing this. We also hope that we can be an amplifier, an accelerant in the industry in this in this transformation of finance. At the end of the day, every company is going to have to decide what they do. Uh, you know, We firmly believe that this is within our fiduciary responsibility because it will improve outcomes for our clients. It will improve risk-adjusted returns, and it will eliminate certain risks that could be could be very significant if you ignore uh, climate change.
2: You've also said, and I think this is a really important point about the resilience, adding resilience to a portfolio. We've talked about it being, or providing superior returns potentially as well for our portfolio. It comes at a time of all sorts of risks that you guys isolate, geopolitical risk, protests that we're seeing all around the world as a result of of inequality, Um, returns, still difficult to find around the world. And for all the stimulus that we're adding in here, Bonds yields, in particular, aren't responding. That's a problem for long-term investors.
4: It is absolutely, and it makes it it makes it difficult to get the outcomes that investors require. Remember that we have an aging society we're going to have to we're going to live much longer so we have to build up retirement savings that's much harder to do with low returns this is the principal challenge in a way of the asset management industry to help the clients find a way to deal with longevity to get the returns that you need as we all live longer Uh, this is a it's a difficult challenge what we can hope for is that at some point the global economy comes back we see a normalization of rates uh, as long as we're trapped in this extreme low rate environment, the challenge for us and for our clients is is very significant.
2: You have a look at stock markets though. We've got protests all around the world fears about inequality, to your point, climate change and the impact that has, and yet we've got markets at record highs.
4: Yeah, the problem, I mean, one of the issues is, is of course, inequality, not just in the sense of income or wealth, but also in, in the kind of wealth. Uh, you know, most uh, people that are suffering do not have equity savings, so they have not benefited from this very strong stock market these last years. And I think this has been one of the sources of the aggravation and the frustration and one of the driving forces behind populism that the returns in a sense in financial markets have been biased uh towards the wealthy
2: the divide is accelerating
4: it is it is as long as we only have wealth gains through financial assets it punishes those who rely on on income and so i think this this has been one of the we believe that this is it's been one of the driving forces behind populism
2: big risk in 2020, what's your message here at Davos?
4: I think, the, look, we have we, 63 central banks have eased monetary policy last year. So this is the big story. 19 was a big pivot towards easing. That should lead to growth edging up in 2020. The big risk is that something derails it coming from the geopolitical side, from the trade side. And, and there, of course, if that were to happen, we have limited ammunition to respond to it. So the key, really, is to avoid an accident and let this growth come back as a result of the financial easing in 2019.
2: Are you calmer about trade in light of the phase one trade deal, or do you think, particularly as far as technology is concerned, there's still going to be
4: tensions? No, it's, it, we're better off than we were a couple of weeks ago, not just because of this, but also Brexit is off the table. At least the hard Brexit for now is off the table. Uh, we we have clarity. We we have we know where this is going to go, more or less. But I would say, you know, the, the big worry for me is that the very limited room to manoeuvre we would have if we were to fall into a recession. So the key really is to avoid it because we have interest rates, we've used up interest rates, we've used up the monetary instruments, at least the traditional ones, so it would be very difficult to respond to a renewed downturn.
2: The Vice Chairman of BlackRock speaking to me earlier. Right. We're going to take a quick break here on First Move, but speaking of risks for 2020, we're going to be talking about one of the key risks, and that's the threat of cybersecurity attacks. Stay with us, we're going to be speaking to the CEO of Cloudflare after this. Welcome back to the World Economic Forum here in Davos, where cybersecurity is right at the top of the agenda. And I'm pleased to say we're joined by the Cloudflare CEO, Matthew Prince, huge cybersecurity giant. Great to have you with us. You are at the intersection, I think, of everything being discussed. Trust in technology, policing of content, whether you like it or not, ultimately, the efficiency gains of cloud technology. What's your message here?
10: You know, I think when we started coming to the World Economic Forum, cybersecurity was not on anyone's mind. And yet with every day when we see another company hacked one after another after another, now it's top of mind for boardrooms around the world. And so when we're here, we're talking about how companies can stay safe, whether they're some of the giants that are attending Davos here, down to small businesses and even individual political campaigns, because everyone's job now is a cybersecurity company.
2: You know, I saw a statistic from 2018 that that estimated that 5 to 10 percent of the world's internet traffic flows through you guys, it's actually far higher than that.
10: We, we, so we have about 12% of all websites sit behind Cloudflare's network, which means that we see an enormous amount of what's going on online. And our job is to make sure that the internet just works, that it's fast, that it's reliable, most importantly, that it's secure. And that's the business that we're in.
2: So along with that, you've seen, just give me a sense of the cyber threats that you see on a daily basis, 72 billion.
10: Yeah, and that's just against our customers. And so when we see those attacks, we're using the data from all of our customers in order to keep them all safe. And so we're regularly seeing attacks that are launched by Yes Nation states, um, but also just individual hackers that are trying to disrupt a business or or cause various problems. And what's powerful about Cloudflare is we act almost like a community watch, where an attack against any one of our customers instantly benefits all the other customers. And that's part of how we've been able to grow as fast as we have.
2: You know, you see the good and you see the bad. And, and even you have come to blows over the website 8chan that, that our viewers, I think, will be, um, will be familiar with here. And, and your instant response was, look, we're not here to police content on the Internet. But then you've got people like the Microsoft president saying there has to be a Geneva convention where private sector companies have to take greater roles here. Where do you stand on this?
10: Well, I think that it, it is the responsibility of all technology companies to think about how they play a role in the overall debate. And I think the responsibility depends on where you are. If you're publishing content directly, if you're making editorial choices, then you have an editorial job to make sure that content is responsible. If you're an underlying infrastructure company, I think what we see ourselves as is maybe not the first line of defense, but sometimes the last line of defense. And that's that's a little bit uncomfortable for us, because if we're just pulling the rug out from under our customers without whether they're trying to do the right thing. That doesn't feel right. On the other hand, if our customers are set up from the beginning to be lawless then we don't really want them as our customers.
2: If somebody came to you and said, look, there are a set of guidelines here. These guys are lawless. Pull the plug. Does that make it easier for you? I guess I'm asking where the responsibility of the private sector begins or ends and where government regulation has to start because precision regulation is one of the key themes here too and it's who plays what role here because right now we're behind the curve.
10: I think think that what we've actually seen is what went from sort of a chaotic regulatory environment to one which is shaping up to be actually a fairly thoughtful regulatory environment. And I think we can go through some transition, but you know, we're not a democratically elected organization. We have no political legitimacy to say this is good and this is bad. And so we would be much more comfortable looking to governments around the world to say you set the rules and then we're happy to follow them.
2: Very quickly, I want to talk about what you're doing in the United States of America ahead of the 2020 election. In- in- in certain cases, you're providing free cybersecurity services to U.S. candidates for the House and, and for the Senate, too. Vitally important. Talk about why.
10: Well, when we saw what happened in 2016, where foreign actors meddled with the U.S. election, and we saw Technology companies being used to actually make democracy less secure, um, we said that we had to do something. And so we started out by saying we'll protect state, local, and federal officials that are actually administering elections. But we wanted to do more than that. We wanted to give our services even to campaigns. The challenge was that could be considered a political donation. Mm-hmm. And so we worked with the Defending Digital Campaigns uh, organization, who applied to the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, to say cybersecurity is such a risk that we need an exception to these rules rules in April they granted that and we're really proud to if you're in an election today we offer our services at no cost to make sure that democracy works we could never have built Cloudflare without a stable government and so we want to do what we can to protect it
2: yeah absolutely and of course 2020 coming up um, really fast here Matthew fantastic to have you with us come back when you're in New York and uh, join us again there's much to discuss Matthew Prince there the CEO of Cloudflare Zane from Davos in Switzerland I'm going to hand back to you All right, Julia, thank you so much. All right, still to come here on First Move, Prince
1: Harry is speaking out as he prepares to step back from British royalty. We dig into what he's saying after the break. Welcome back. Prince Harry has been holding... An announced meeting today with British Prime Minister Boris Johnson at the UK African Investment Summit in London, where he also held a number of other private meetings as well. This follows his heartfelt speech Sunday night at a charity event where the prince spoke of his great sadness at stepping back from the British royal family. The Duke of Sussex says that he and his wife Meghan had no choice but to cut royal ties. Anna Stewart is joining us live now. So, Anna, in this speech, he also sort of sought to change the narrative that it was Meghan Markle behind this decision that it was her idea to sort of seek financial independence. He's saying clearly that that was not the case, that it actually was his idea
11: yeah there's a lot to dig into really in this speech it was extraordinarily heartfelt and honest uh, and you're right he said this was his decision really putting paid to any of the tabloid narrative that this was all to do with hashtag mexit and that it was a megan duchess of sussex call to leave the uk and to want to reform a sort of new role in the future he also spoke about his great sadness though about the agreement and it was very interesting to find out that this is not necessarily what he and Meghan wanted take a listen
3: the decision that I have made for my wife and I to step back is not one I made lightly. It was so many months of talks after so many years of challenges. And I know I haven't always gone it right, but as far as this goes, there really was no other option. What I want to make clear is, we're not walking away. And we certainly aren't walking away from you. Our hope was to continue serving the Queen, the Commonwealth and my military associations but without public funding. Unfortunately, that wasn't possible
11: decision to step back entirely as working members of the royal family isn't what the couple wanted and we know from a previous statement from the queen that she wanted the couple to very much remain part of the working uh, royal members of the family so no winners here really but as you said earlier prince harry said that he very much felt he had to do this this was the only option and a lot of blame i think being laid uh, at the media's feet in that speech as well he said it, they were a powerful force same
1: and Just based on that, what can we learn from all of this about what the experience for these two has been like living under the glare of the British media?
11: Prince harry also said in the speech that this comes after years of challenges and months of talk so while the marriage uh, his marriage to megan in the last couple of years kind of perhaps raised the profile and added more tabloid interest in the couple this is something he has felt through his whole lifetime he has in the past said that he considered stepping back from the firm from the royal family so this is really nothing entirely new to prince harry he has struggled under the media glare for many years he sees the media as responsible in part for the death of his mother, Princess Diana. It'll be interesting to see how this changes going forward. As new independent members of the royal family, he wants to forge a new role with the media. But of course, there will always be tabloid interest in whatever they do. Same. All
1: right, Ennis Stewart live for us there. We wish them all the best. That's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. Connect the World starts after this short break. You're watching CNN.
0: When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level.